Well, Mark 14, we're making our way through the gospel according to Mark. We find ourselves in a very difficult passage where we see Peter, the rock, come tumbling down. And it's tough whenever we hear of a fall of a Christian. And it's really tough to watch someone like Peter fall and fail his Lord. Uh, But it is something that helps us understand the gospel and the meaning of the cross and our need for grace. So let me uh, pray for our time together as we look at God's word. Oh God, we are thankful for your word. We acknowledge that it is your word that brings us to life and nourishes us. Father, we together as a church confess that we need to hear your word, not the words of a man, but the words of the living God. So we come in faith and pray that you would bless us and work your work for the sake of your great name among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What would things look like if Satan really took over a city? All of the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. and Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes sir, and no ma'am. And the churches will be, would be filled every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Where he is not preached as the only hope for sinners. So begins Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity. Jesus, the only hope for sinners. It is the Christian gospel in a nutshell. And as yet Horton points out, far too often the core message of the gospel is entirely missing among evangelical Christians. Rather, the Christian gospel is misconstrued as a life of morality. Jesus Christ is thought of as the absolute moral standard, and to be a Christian means nothing more than to follow his example. And uh, this error, friends, is often demonstrated by the way people read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read the accounts and you find Jesus calling together some blue-collar guys to follow him. And these men spend about three years learning the way of Jesus. Why? It's supposed that they might teach others to live like Jesus lived. And the cross, well, it becomes Jesus' final example of love. So that if you want to be like Jesus, look to the cross and sacrifice yourself on behalf of others. Serve others. Like Jesus served others. This all, this is all that Christianity is and nothing more. Now, friends, while the Christian life certainly does seek to imitate Jesus, this approach to understanding the gospel accounts, and specifically Mark's gospel account, is proven incomplete when you consider Peter's fall in Mark chapter 14. In one night of intense pressure, his discipleship comes crashing down immediately before our eyes. And friends, this is no private failure. This is no secret sin of a man who is attempting to overcome his sin struggles. No, this is a public repudiation of Jesus Christ, and it becomes a fall. It's a fascinating thing about it. It becomes a fall preserved for us in sacred history to be seen by all Christians in all ages. What is this? Peter's fall. It is a fall for all to see. A fall for all to see. Perhaps you've seen one before, heard of one before, or even experienced it yourself. 
A visit from a prostitute results in a positive HIV test. A drunken night on the town ends in a car accident. A white-collar crime is detected by the tax auditor. It's a sin so grievous and so public that it immediately discredits every claim that this person makes to follow the example of Jesus. We see this with Christian leaders. And how many times when something like this happens do we hear the response like this? That guy, that gal, there's no way they're a Christian. Jesus doesn't do that. And now, this kind of condemnation falls on one of Jesus' choice disciples, Peter. Peter the rock. And if Peter will have any hope whatsoever, listen, he needs Jesus to be more for him than a moral example to follow. Peter needs a Jesus who is the hope for sinners, a Savior who can forgive and cleanse and restore and raise sinners who have blown it. Is why, friends, Peter's fall is preserved for us. It is here to convince you that you're not basically good in need of moral guidance. It's here to convince you that you are a sinner in need of a cross. And not a cross that serves as a final act of a moral hero to inspire you into a life of service, but a cross that is filled with every redemptive accomplishment necessary to save you from God's judgment. It's Peter's fall, and it is a fall for all to see. Mark 14, we're going to see this. We need the cross because we deserve the curse. It's true for every soul in this place, no matter if you grew up in church, no matter if this is your first Sunday in church in years. Wherever you are, wherever you come from, this is true. We need the cross because we deserve the curse. And beloved, one reason as Christian people, that we begin to lose our fire and our boldness as Christian people is because we begin to adopt the lesson that the society is teaching you, namely to think of yourself in therapeutic terms. Our society says you need to think of yourselves in therapeutic terms. You're, you're moral, but you're in need of guidance. You're capable and you just need some inspiration. Or you're sad, you need some happiness, go find your happy life. Or you're sick, you need health. And when we begin to adopt this kind of view of ourselves, we begin to diminish the merits of the cross of Jesus, and our fire grows cold. We begin to cripple under the pressure of a society that does not want to hear the gospel. Peter's fall says, no, we are basically, fundamentally, sinners who need a cross. And this discovery and this rediscovery is going to unleash us to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ. Now, to convince us of this, Mark here does something with Jesus and Peter. He intentionally places the trial of Jesus side by side with another trial, the trial of Peter, you might say, Jesus has just been arrested by a small army of temple guards. and They bring him to the high priest's home to try him. Notice verse 40, uh, 53, rather, we read about the beginning of Jesus' trial. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now these men make up the Sanhedrin. You can think of them as the Jewish Supreme Court. 
The high priest is the one with the most authority in the law. You can think of him like the chief justice. And so they're bringing him to trial. Now ask yourself, why a trial? These men have authority. Why not take Jesus out immediately? Well, beloved, it is a trial that is required to function under the parameters of God's Old Testament law. And what is more, these are pragmatic men. They know they can't destroy Jesus without providing at least a legal basis before the crowds, who at this time are still pro-Jesus. And so under the cloak of darkness, at midnight around that time, the legal proceedings begin. Jesus is on trial, and surprisingly, a defector arrives. A man who has just abandoned Jesus to save his own skin. Peter. Peter shows up. Apparently this man is not satisfied with what his defection has said about his commitment level to Jesus. And so he arrives on scene. Notice 54, we see Peter arrive. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Notice here, Peter follows Jesus to the house at a distance. What does that tell you about Peter? On the one hand, he wants to witness the outcome of a man he's followed for three years. But he's at a distance. Tells us that he doesn't want to be caught as a secret disciple. And so Peter kind of pulls this halfway position between commitment and cowardice. He settles in the perfect position the fire pit in the open courtyard. It's in the middle of the house, lots of open space. Here, he will be close enough to witness the trial proceedings of Jesus, but far away enough so that people won't recognize his identity. Jesus on trial, Peter on trial. This is what Mark is showing you here. He's hinting at what will become plainly obvious. There's not one man on trial this evening, there are two. Who will be condemned? And who will be acquitted? So let's take a look at these two trials and see. Trial number one, we see the faithful witness. The faithful witness. Verse 55, the trial begins. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Now, when you hear this carefully, it sounds a little off, doesn't it? Doesn't something sound a little awry in this legal procedure? Perhaps it's not exactly legal. Notice these men have a goal. These judges to put Jesus to death. And how will they go about achieving this goal? They're going to find witnesses to prop it up. So in other words, these are judges who have a predetermined verdict in mind. And they decide upon the case before they even hear witnesses. This is a this is a hack job of a trial. It's a kangaroo court out of the gates. And you would know if you've been following along the gospel according to Mark, this is not surprising. We've seen these men before. These men are not concerned with justice. These men hate Jesus. We've seen them. They've seen Jesus, you see, winning the praise and the devotion of the crowds. And these men have authority in Israel and they want to preserve that authority and so they feel threatened by Jesus. This Threatening feeling turns into hate and fear. And so these men just want Jesus out of the picture. And so they want him dead. And in fact, Pilate, we'll look at him next week, Lord willing, this pagan Roman judge, he knows this about these men. 
Chapter 15, verse 10 tells us that this pagan recognizes that these judges just hand him over because they are envious of him. These men don't care about justice. They're envious. They're hate, hateful. They hate Jesus. They, they want him out. And so, this is the first thing Mark wants you to see. This is an unjust trial from the beginning. And to give you one example of this injustice, Mark points to an example, a very famous example, of an accusation against Jesus. Notice verse uh, 58 here. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands, yet even about this their testimony did not agree. So this is the issue here. Their testimony, these witnesses, they did not agree. Now the law of Moses had one cornerstone standard for establishing criminal charges. Deuteronomy 19 says, a charge may not be laid down except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, this safeguards the accused from false criminal charges or accusations. And the reason is, is pretty obvious. If you place two testimonies side by side, it's easy to see if one of them have, have been fabric, fabricated. And this is exactly what's happening at the trial of Jesus. That's the point, you see, with this bringing up of the destruction of the temple, this charge here. Some have reportedly heard Jesus say that he will destroy God's temple. Now, that's a serious charge, isn't it? Temple where the Yahweh, the living God, dwells. Serious. They say he's going to replace that temple with a new temple. One made not with hands. That is one that is spiritual. One that can't be destroyed. And so this is an accusation of a crime to create a false religion. And again, the testimony does not agree. Jesus did not say exactly this And so again, Mark says, this trial is unsuccessful, it is unjust, and therefore, friends, whatever you think about Jesus, know this. In his case, justice is entirely abandoned. Jesus is going to be crucified, not because he was a public menace, not because he was a religious vigilante, but because of an unjust trial. You see, Jesus is the righteous one. And he is not guilty of any such crime. That's what Mark wants you to see here. Now, at this point, there's probably many hours that have gone by in this trial. You know that because Mark says that many witnesses have spoken. What this means here is that the high priest, this chief justice, knows that he is not making progress. I mean, this is a problem for him who wants a murder or a charge uh, that reaches a capital offense here. And this problem is intensified by the fact that Jesus is not defending himself at all. And you might ask, well, why is that a problem? Could it be strategic when you have these false accusations brought against you to just keep your mouth shut? Well, it could be. But for their case, friends, it's a problem because these men are convinced he's guilty. They've seen Jesus teach in the temple, They've seen him put a pause on the temple worship. They're convinced that if Jesus merely opens his mouth and begins addressing these accusations, he will reveal himself to be the imposter they know he really is. And so the high priest gets impatient. He begins to take matters into his own hands, and he puts Jesus' feet to the fire. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made no answer. Jesus here will not be provoked to retaliate. He will not be provoked to be manipulated. Rather, Jesus here will play the role of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. You remember that prophecy? Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Now, Jesus, friends, is filled with faith in God. He does not take matters into his own hands, but instead he knows that his vindication belongs to God. Perhaps here, Jesus is praying Psalm 109, 28, Let them curse, but you will bless. Jesus trusts his Father and trusts his soul to the one who can vindicate him. And ironically, the one who is provoked is the high priest. Jesus' silent faith kind of wraps him up a bit. And this man, listen, he understands that if he cannot get Jesus to talk, he's going to be stuck in a judicial gridlock here. Time is of the essence. Their time is running out. The window of opportunity to try Jesus under the cloak of darkness will close. They won't be able to kill Jesus. So now, watch, the high priest reaches here for the nuclear option. A direct accusation that he hopes will lead to a capital offense. He remained silent. He made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? That is that Old Testament prophesied final king who will usher in the end of time. The kingdom of glory on earth. The one who is so close to God that God calls this Christ his beloved son. Are you this Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Unlike everyone else in this trial, Jesus testifies to the truth. And here we see, listen, the central truth that Mark has been pointing to us all along. Jesus of Nazareth. That one that you know will be rejected by the Jews and crucified by the Romans. This Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I am, he says. Now to make sure that this high priest catches it, catches what he's saying, doesn't misunderstand Jesus, Jesus proves to the man that he knows exactly who the Messiah is. Jesus quotes two Messianic prophecies. Psalm 110 verse 1 says that the Messiah will rule at the right hand of God. Daniel 7.13 says that the Christ will be coronated, not on earth, but in heaven. And to emphasize the certainty of his identity, Jesus predicts that the high priest himself will see one day this Jesus fulfilling the prophecies before his very eyes. Talk about provocative here. Now, Now, friends, don't forget that these men are not, again, motivated by justice, but by envy. And so when this high priest hears a a confession to this magnitude, he must have been filled with delight. (laughs) Ha ha, got him! And so what you see following here is not an act of genuine righteousness, it's a show of piety. Notice how he responds, verse 63. 
and I priest tore his garments. He ripped his garments. It's, it's a sign of being appalled in the sight of something unholy. And then he asked all the other judges to make a ruling right now without delay. He says, what, other, what further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. The high priest asserts to these judges here that they have witnessed Jesus committing blasphemy, a sin that must be punished by death, according to Leviticus chapter 16. Blasphemy. It is the most basic form of profaning God's holy name. Now, actually, if you look back on the Hebrew, to blaspheme literally means to pierce something through, to destroy it by punctuating it, by piercing it. And so on a basic level, blasphemy is to pierce the name of Yahweh, to, to destroy the honor and the reputation and the holiness of Yahweh's name. Uh, think of it this way. We say things like this all the time. Uh, he drug my name through the mud. Blasphemy is dragging the name of Yahweh through the mud. So these men are saying something like this. Jesus, you are a threat to the very heart of our worship of Yahweh by you, you, calling yourself Christ, you are dragging Yahweh's name through the mud. You deserve to die, Jesus. It's why we see this scene descend into wretched, hypocritical violence. Notice, they spit on him, 65. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Why the mocking? Why the beating? These men believe that they have moral justification for this action. They say, God wants this Jesus to die. So by mocking him and beating him, they're saying to all, we're on God's side. In fact, we're giving Jesus less than he deserves. We're on the side of justice. We're on the side of holiness. And so these men are all in. This man deserves to be treated like trash. Does this strike you as conflicting with what you know about Jesus in the rest of Mark's gospel account? If you've been following along, you know these men are missing one option that has not even crossed their minds. Namely, that Jesus is telling the truth. That Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ. And that's what we see here. Jesus, before men, boldly professing and testifying to the truth, I am the Christ. Jesus would rather be beaten, scorned, and misjudged and denying the truth. And here at the trial, Mark is providing you, this very day, solid evidence for why you can believe that Jesus is the Christ. His trial was unjust from the beginning. His silence aligns with Old Testament prophecy. Jesus refuses to deny the truth even at the cost of his own life. What does this tell you, friends? This testimony is reliable. His testimony is faithful. You can trust it. You can depend on it. You can build your life on it. You can even die for it. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and how can you know? He is the faithful witness, the Amen, as Revelation says. Meanwhile, another trial begins, trial number two, the false witness. Verse 66, Mark shifts the scene back to Peter, who is keeping himself warm as he listens in to Jesus' trial. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. So notice here the scene. The slave woman notices this man who appears to be a bit out of place. He's surrounded by these temple guards around a fire. And so she spots the man. She gives it a thought. She begins looking over who this man might be. And then it dawns on her. Oh yes, Jesus is famous for having 12 men who follows him around. 12 supporters. We saw him at the temple. This must be one of those supporters. One of those affiliates of Jesus. And so she points the finger at Peter and says, you're one of those disciples, aren't you? And unlike in the trial of Jesus, this accusation sticks. Peter knows he's cut. He's caught. Now notice, this confrontation for Peter is serious. Okay, This is not like if you haven't been around church for a while, and you come to church on a Sunday, and the pastor comes up to you and says, hey, are you new to the area? That, might, that confrontation might make you feel a little awkward. Here, however, this accusation is deadly. The confrontation is deadly. Peter understands the situation he's in. The Sanhedrin, listen, they want to stomp out everyone associated with this Jesus movement. And what better way to prevent an uprising of disciples than to crucify the leader of this movement with his number one supporter, Peter. So listen, if Peter admits to this charge, he knows he's a dead man. And so this one little accusation begins to make Peter unravel. And he denies it, 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Peter plays dumb. Peter's like a kid here who makes an excuse for not doing his chores. Oh, Dad, what do you mean? I don't know what you said to mow the lawn. What is a lawn anyways? I didn't understand what you mean when you told me to do my chores. That doesn't really work, does it? And it doesn't work before God. Here with Peter, Mark tells us what this response really is. Denial, a repudiation, an assertion to the contrary. You say I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I tell you it's not true. Peter lies to save his neck. And now, to show you, to convince you that Peter knows exactly what he's doing, watch now as Peter begins to head for the exit. Verse 68, he went out into the gateway, that is to the exit gate leading onto the street, and the rooster crowed. Now Peter makes his way to this exit, and it's a little confusing about what he's doing exactly. You'll see that Peter will find himself again around this fire, and he will be accused a second time. 
Why is he making his way to the exit only to return to be accused a second time? Well, Mark doesn't really clarify this. But if you put this account next to the other gospel accounts, it appears that something like this is happening. Upon hearing this first accusation, Peter gets flustered. He begins to head for the exit to save his neck once and for all. But when he arrives, he hears the rooster crow. And this briefly reminds Peter of that awful prediction just hours before when Jesus tells him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And as Peter thinks about this, he's jolted into some kind of self-awareness. No, Peter. It's not too late. Turn around. Turn yourself in. There's still time to follow the example of Jesus. Go die with your master. And so he musters up some courage. And under the cloak of night, Peter inconspicuously makes his way back to the fire pit with the guards who assume that he stepped away momentarily for no suspicious reason at all. But the slave woman has been watching. She finds this movement to the exit and back a little odd for someone who asserts that he is not associated with Jesus. Now, she's more convinced than ever. This man has to be a disciple. And so she goes up to these guards here at the fire and she begins to tell the temple guards. She accuses Peter not directly but indirectly. She tells the men who have the power to arrest Peter... This is one of them, 69. And the servant saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Peter's opportunity to play dead has already passed. He used that strategy once. What else can he do? Only a straightforward, serious, clear-cut denial will work. But he denied it. I am not a disciple of Jesus. Peter here is caught, isn't he? A second denial. He is caught in the web of his own lies. Have you ever been there before? One sin leads to one cover-up. A lie. One lie makes it much more difficult to break free from that one sin and eventually this leads down the path of a double life. And it's a path, my friends, that leads to a fall for all to see. Peter here is on the precipice of a fall like this. And a final accusation pushes him over the edge. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. So Matthew tells us that these men listen to Peter's accent. Peter, you see, is from the north, so he talks a little funny to these guys. And they know that Jesus selected all of his disciples from the north country, from Galilee, and they begin putting these pieces together. Certainly, yes, this man has to be a disciple of Jesus. Truly, assuredly, certainly. You're a disciple, aren't you? And now the pressure proves too much for Peter to handle. He doesn't want to die yet. He doesn't want to go die with Jesus. So Peter here 
reaches for his own nuclear option, he performs a religious ritual that was highly revered in Judaism in these days. He makes an oath. He makes an oath. It's the act of calling on God to take the witness stand on your behalf. It's like, uh, it's like saying before man, God knows what I did. He knows it's true. And God himself can testify that I'm telling the truth. And to make this oath even more convincing, Peter binds himself to a penalty. 71, notice his response. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, that is to take an oath, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Notice what Peter does here. To save his skin, Peter calls on God to curse him if his oath proves to be a lie. This curse is serious language. It is packed with Old Testament meaning. A curse, a full dose of God's judgment against sinners. It's it's similar to the language of a woe. You remember how Jesus talks about Judas? Woe is that man. That is, he is worthy of the worst condemnation from God. It's the same kind of language. Peter here is saying this, God is my witness, I do not know this man. And if I'm lying to you, woe is me. Let God curse me right now if what I'm saying is not true. Lo and behold, he doesn't fall down dead, does he? The oath and the curse are convincing. The guards do not arrest Jesus, uh, Peter. Peter is not beaten. Peter is not mocked. Peter is not handed over to Pilate. He's not flogged. Peter is not crucified with Jesus. No, Peter escapes death. The verdict rendered at his trial, you may go. Not guilty. But Peter knows what he truly deserves. All accounting to the sound of a bird. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Second rooster crow brings Peter to his senses. He begins to think about the conversation again. He will deny Jesus Christ three times before the rooster crows twice. Something that Peter promised he would never do, he has done. It's a promise that he could not keep. A vow that he broke to Jesus. And upon realizing this, Peter can hardly stand. This man breaks down, leans over, puts his hands in his face, and he begins to weep. Peter weeps tears, you you see, of a man who understands exactly what he has done. At this point, Peter no longer believes himself to be a theoretical sinner, a sinner in theory. Peter can taste the bitterness of his own sin And his tears prove that he understands that he has bound himself to receive the curse of God. Here is a man, you see, who finally understands 
that all he deserves from God is the curse. Peter, the exalted disciple of Jesus, the first disciple, the great disciple, his Christian honor is gone. His moral resume is torn into shreds. His discipleship falls crashing down into a heap of ruins before our very eyes. It's a fall for all of us to see. To which we should ask, why does this make it into Mark's gospel account? When you're going to start a movement or recruit people to follow your cause, you normally put someone on stage who exemplifies the cause, who promotes the cause well. Mark here, though, doesn't cover up the failure of the leading disciple of Jesus. Why? Short answer is this. Peter wanted everyone to know about his fall. Peter wanted you to know about his fall. Think of it, friends. Who in the early church could have known about all these details, the minute details of this account? Two roosters crow, not just one. A brief exit and return. The slave woman directly accuses Peter the first time and then indirectly accuses him the second time. The accusation that Peter is a Galilean because he has a funny accent. Who in the early church could possibly know this? One man. Peter. Peter wanted his fall to be published far and wide. Why? Because Peter found in Jesus someone willing to return. You see, Jesus returned to Peter. Jesus forgave Peter, restored Peter, and raised Peter. Jesus even remade Peter into a disciple that Jesus promised he would always be the rock. You see this in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, less than two months after Peter comes crashing down, Peter here is standing before the very men who convict and try Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest. And now he's on trial again for preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And they threaten him, and they tell him to shut his mouth, and here's his response. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. What a, what a recovery. What a restoration. And though Peter was never a perfect disciple, he eventually was crucified upside down as a martyr for being a faithful witness. So why does Peter want you to know about his fall? Because, my friends, Peter had to come to an understanding that his false witness is not the only witness that counted in the eyes of God. Think of this trial here. Think about the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter. and the trial of Jesus, Jesus is the faithful witness, but he loses his life. Peter, however, is a false witness who keeps his life. Jesus is the righteous one, but he's condemned. Peter, the unrighteous, is set free. Jesus deserves life, but is cursed. Peter, who deserves the curse, is given life. The trial of Jesus, my friends, is the shadow of the cross. 
It's the beginning of a cross that is not merely a moral example. It's the cross where God considers the righteous one as guilty in the place of the guilty. And where he considers the guilty to be the righteous ones because of his own faithful witness. That's why in time Peter would come and talk about the cross like this. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He didn't understand this was the cross beforehand, you see. But he had to taste his bitter sin so that he could come to see, I need a cross, not merely as a moral example to follow, but as a substitution, someone who would take my curse, put it away forever, rise from the grave, and restore me. The fall, it's Peter's way of saying this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Friends, it's why his fall is here. To convince you that you are no better than Peter. Friends, don't wait until you fall like Peter to be convinced of this truth. See your own depravity in Peter, in his fall. None of us deserve more than Peter deserves. We all deserve condemnation from God. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you really believe all I deserve from God is the curse? You might say, well, I don't want to think about that. That's depressing. No, friends, it is the path that leads to hope. When you recognize and when you embrace this truth, you will find in the cross your treasure. Until you embrace this truth, listen, you'll never be able to really treasure the cross for what it truly is. God's work of grace to come to you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, and to raise you. Until you see that all you deserve is the curse, you will not find in Jesus the only hope for a sinner like you. And maybe you come today and you do know. Maybe you've fallen hard recently. Like Peter, you've broken your vows to God. Or, or maybe... You've experienced a fall like this, and everybody knows it. Perhaps you know right now, all you deserve from God is His wrath. The call for you is to see the cross for what it is. The cross does not say, follow my example. The cross says, come and be forgiven. And the cross, you see a Christ who returns to fallen sinners like yourself and forgives them completely who restores them entirely, and who unleashes them to become bold witnesses for Jesus who say, like Paul, Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I, among, I am among the worst of them all. The cross, friends, restores us. Listen, church, the more you are convinced of this truth, the more you know yourself to be deserving of only God's curse, listen, the more bold you will be in your witness for Jesus. Where does boldness before men come from? It comes from a love for God, a love for Christ. When Christ is your treasure, when he's your greatest love, you don't care what people think about you. You don't care what people will do to you because you know how you have in Christ a treasure that no one can take away. 
You have heaven itself waiting for you so that even if they kill you, they're just ushering you to heaven's splendor. The people who are the most bold for Christ say with John Newton, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. He's our treasure. You can't lose anything if you have Jesus. Friends, let's embrace this truth about ourselves. We are not fundamentally moral people who need guidance. We are not fundamentally sad people who need happiness. We are not fundamentally weak people who need a little strength. No, we are fundamentally sinners who deserve God's wrath, but thanks be to God, He has given us grace in Jesus. He has forgiven us, restored us, and raised us. And let's boldly preach our Christ until He comes. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that there is hope for sinners like us. We see in our brother Peter a man who blew it. But more than that, we see in Peter a Christ who can restore the worst of sinners, to remake him, to give him a hope. Jesus, we profess this day that you alone are our hope. And we thank you so much that we have hope in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.